world must be ending. The worship pastor is preaching. <laughs> At least that's what uh, my uh, preaching professor in seminary said about 30 years ago in a first day of class when he was going around the room and kind of finding out what we were all about and what we were all planning to do in our ministry. Of course, this is also the same worship pastor uh, who said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, don't, uh, or you can uh, tell them more to do from God's word in 15 minutes than they'll ever do in 15 years. So don't do us all a favor, just don't preach longer than 15 minutes. That's probably not going to happen, but <laughs> we can pray. Well, today we're looking at uh, another of the summits, the seven summits that we've been studying. It's what we've been calling these seven places in the New Testament where we find a story or scripture that informs or elevates our worship today. And our theme today is worship lavishly. I love that. Worship lavishly. Worship passionately. And we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture. It's a, dinner, a certain dinner party in the book of John, the 12th chapter. Now, we've met some of the participants in this dinner party. We actually met them last week when Rob Shrump, our guest speaker, spoke and introduced us to Mary and Martha, two sisters, sisters of Lazarus of Bethany. Now, uh, this dinner party is not the same dinner party that we studied last week. Uh, that one took place earlier in Jesus' ministry. This one takes place, we know from Scripture, because it tells us that it happened just seven days before the crucifixion. Last week, we heard about Martha. And we heard how uh, she, in her devotion to Jesus, and she was playing hospitality, uh, the role of, hospi uh, of host, uh, was cooking and kind of got a little upset about the fact that she was doing it by herself. And Jesus had to gently remind her that we each have our own calling and our each uh, have our own offering to offer. And he even said to her in words, you know, in a bit of a rebuke, uh, Mar Martha, Martha, you're so upset. I, I can't hear those words without thinking back to my first year coming out of the seminary and my first year of ministry uh, going from Fort Worth, Texas to uh, the central New Jersey area. And uh, my very first musical that I directed uh, with children, our, our children's musical, and a wonderful family who we're still friends with today, the Lalomia family. They were a good Jersey-born Italian family from you know, uh, central Jersey there. And uh, they had four boys, and all four boys were in the children's choir. Loved those kids. Well, uh, I remember the very first rehearsal. They had all learned their lines, and Jay Lalomia, who was playing the part of Jesus in this scene, came forward. And I said, hey, Jay, you got your lines memorized? He goes, yeah. So he came forward, and uh, little eight-year-old Jay Lalomia, when it was, came time to speak the words of Jesus, said, Martha, Martha. You're so worried about stuff, but Mary has known, she knows what's better. <laughs> now, I, I probably exaggerate just a little bit, maybe, but uh, Jay, I'm sorry if you're watching. Uh, but yeah, it was a little bit of a culture shock. But I love the picture of that dinner party. 
Now, just to be clear, uh, the Mary we're going to talk about today, we learned about Martha last week, we're learning about Mary this week. And just to be clear, this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, this is not uh, Mary Magdalene, this is another Mary, Mary was a very common name, Mary of Bethany, they were friends of Jesus that lived just outside of Jerusalem. A great place for Jesus to stop in for a meal, for fellowship, and for resting. We're going to learn about something really beautiful that this disciple of Christ did to honor Jesus on that day. But before we get there, I thought we would take a moment and dive into another passage that would help put into context and help us understand a little bit better about lavish worship. The passage is one that you know really well. It's from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Let's read these together. Mark 12, 28 through 29. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Let's pause a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, as we reason together and as we look to your words, I pray, Father, that my words would be few, that I would decrease, that you might increase, and that your wisdom would be the thing that is in this room and that we leave with today. Father, open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds to your wisdom and to your truth and your word. In Jesus' name, we ask this. Amen. So, two great commandments that Jesus had, the two greatest commandments, in fact. And I believe both of these are foundational in understanding what it means to worship lavishly. You know what the word lavish means, right? How do we interpret that verse? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do you receive that when you hear it? I had a great moment of seeing how another person received that just a few weeks ago. It was in our uh, summer worship art and music program camp, otherwise known as Swamp. If you're not familiar with Swamp, it's a week, kind of like VBS, where we had hundreds of kids in here. We read God's Word. We learn about Jesus, all in the context of worshiping and singing. And all week long, oh, well, before I get there, there was this song that we wanted to teach. And Mr. James Gilmore, our worship pastor for the week, uh, wanted to teach this song. And, and you know the song. It was new for the kids, but old for us. Help me out with it. It's a call and response song. It goes like this. I will worship I with all of my heart. And I will praise you with all of my strength, all my strength. Yeah, you know it. Well, we taught that to the kids, but before we taught it, 
Mr. Gilmore shared this verse with the kids, and they sang it. It was beautiful. Well, I saw on the front row as I was sitting right over here in the, in the uh, swamp band, I saw this little girl uh, sitting in the front row, and man, she was a worshiper. I love it. When we're supposed to be singing loud, she was shouting at the top of her lungs. When we were supposed to be like jumping up and down and having a good time, she was bouncing off the ceiling up there. I mean, I was scared she was going to hit her head on the rafters. I mean, she could not be still, and I loved watching her get engaged in worship. And I happened to be standing close to her when that day was ending and we're waiting for the parents to come. So I asked her, I said, so what does it mean to you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And she thought about it for a second. And then she went, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) and I laughed. I said, what was that? She said, I'm loving the Lord God really hard. <laughs> I love that. I love that answer because she actually kind of gets it. She gets that loving the Lord is not a casual activity. It's not something that we do easily and occasionally. It takes all that we are and bring it before all that God is. But I love what she did too. I love that she paused and thought about it for a second. Here's why. That verse out of Mark, the the greatest commandments, is one we know really well. We, in fact, sort of get our uh, unofficial motto since coming back from COVID, you know, from that to, you know, love God and love others. But I would put that scripture in the sort of the pantheon of scriptures that we know so well, they just come tripping off of our tongue. Sort of like uh, the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Or John 3.16, we've all heard since we were children. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They just come so easily to us. That's why we love them. But therein lies the danger as well. Because... They can come straight to our lips as we read them or say them, and they can bypass our minds. We don't engage our intellect as we begin to examine those words. So I thought before we got into the story of Mary of Bethany, we would examine just briefly these four instructions on how to love God that Jesus gave first one was love the Lord your God with all your heart. That one sounds easy. We love people with all our heart. We can't go more than three pop songs you know, on the radio uh, station or on our satellite radio before we aren't hearing some reference to giving all of your heart to someone. You know, that person broke my heart, etc. It was the seat of emotion for us. That's how we see that metaphor of the heart. But it was completely different for the Hebrew people at the time of Jesus. They saw the heart as the seat of the will. In other words, where we make our decisions, where we chart our course and our path. So, loving God with all of our heart meant getting rid of your own will and replacing it with the will of our Father. To make His will our will. To love the Lord your God with all of your soul is is a fairly easy one to understand because it's very similar to our culture today. The soul to uh, the uh, Hebrew culture at that time 
meant all of the inner being. It was our inner thoughts. It was the things that are not seen by others. It was our inner dialogue. It was that secret place inside where we met with God. And so loving God with all of your soul simply meant uh, that we were loving him with everything inside of us. We find our inner self inclined towards God always, seeking him and having him as the center of our attention and our affections. Now, this passage was actually taken, uh, this passage that Jesus spoke, was actually not just something he was saying extemporaneously. He was actually quoting scripture. The scripture comes from Deuteronomy, and I'm going to read that, uh, it's known as the Shema in Jewish tradition, and I'm going to read it. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to challenge you to listen carefully to see if you can hear a difference in what the Shema from Deuteronomy said and what Jesus said. Here's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. What was different? The mind. Jesus had four. There's only three in the Shema. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, Jesus just misquoted it, or maybe it was accidental. You know, I think we can agree that Jesus probably the last person on earth to misquote Old Testament Scripture. Uh, he probably had it well. As a matter of fact, probably every Jewish child of that time knew that well. Uh, it was taught to them, you know, as soon as they could uh, begin to read and memorize parts of the Torah, and it was actually part of their daily prayer, kind of like we might have the Lord's Prayer. So Jesus knew it very well. He changed it or added to it for a reason, and here's why. Remember I said earlier that the, in the Hebrew tradition, the heart was the soul of reason and willpower and decision-making. Not the case for the audience of his teaching here in Mark. These were actually Gentiles. So you had Greeks and you had Romans. Think about the Greeks, Socrates, Plato, some of the greatest thinkers of all time. And Jesus wanted to make sure that those in that tradition knew that he wasn't just referring to the heart as in the seat of our emotion, which is what the Greeks and the Gentiles would believe, similar to us. But they were that it was important to engage the mind, our intellect, in serving the Lord and loving the Lord. So we specified that, uh, you know, in addition to the Shema, he was very intentional about what he wanted them to understand. Finally, loving the Lord God with all of our strength. That one would be sort of just the opposite of the love God with your soul. And that soul was the inner being. Our strength was our outward activity. It was our actions. It was our words to others. It was the way we leveraged our resources. We talked earlier about giving and stewardship. It was the way we acted outwardly. And Jesus, in saying this, says loving God means that all of our outward actions and words will actually and indeed show our love for God. Now, in all four of those, there was one word that was the same. It was used in all four, and it's the word all. Jesus demonstrated great insight to the listeners that he had before him, the Gentiles, that loving God takes all of our being, every aspect that they were aware of, inner being, outward activity, the releasing of our own will to that of God's and the investment of our intellect and intelligence. 
heard once that nothing of value comes easy. Jesus wanted them to know that loving God was a 24-7 activity. In fact, the religions of the day in Rome and in Greece, they had a pantheon of many gods, you know, of certain areas of their lives. And, and how you worshipped was when it was time for the harvest, you went to the god of the harvest and you made an offering. And uh, hopefully your harvest, you would be, you know, he would smile upon you, that, that god, and, and your harvest would be good. And then you went on and you lived your life. It was very compartmentalized. And Jesus, speaking to this crowd, said, no, no. It's all the time and with everything that you have. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And with that context, let's take time now to look this amazing disciple of Jesus, Mary in Bethany. Let's turn to John 12. You'll find it there. It's the very first three or four verses. I'll read the first three. John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That incredibly beautiful image. Can you just see that in your mind? I wanted to just help us experience that a little bit this morning. Uh, I brought with me an alabaster jar from Israel. Uh, it's what they would have kept perfumes like this in. This is kind of a small one. But actually inside it, I have nard from Israel. It's an essence, it's a musk. It's not what you would think of as modern perfume. I'm going to open it. I'm going to leave it right here if you would like to come and see what that smells like. But really, as I thought about this, I thought, you know, there's a better way to do this, actually. So you might have sitting next to you something that looks like this. It's a little baggy, snack baggy, and it has on it, do not open. If you've got one of those, go ahead and open that up. That's just a piece of tissue paper that has had nard dripped on it. Feel free to open that up and, and see what nard smells like. It's a 2,000 or older year old scent. You can pass that down if you like. And maybe this room as well will be filled with the essence of this ancient perfume. You can do that quietly. But hey, not just uh, that sense. I love multisensory experiences. So I'll ask you to engage another sense right now. Several months ago, I was online and I was looking through sacred artwork and I came across a painting by Christian artist Wayne Forte and it stopped me in my tracks. And I'd like to share it with you now. I would simply ask that you take in the details. 
Isn't that powerful? I'm going to ask our production team just to leave that up for this next part of our conversation. Feel free to just look at that painting and don't look at me. I won't be offended. To wash someone's feet was an act of hospitality. It was also an act of humility. It was born in the desire to honor the one whose feet were being washed. And it was no small commitment. In our sterilized and sanitized and purified world that we live in, we forget that people once walked everywhere they went, barefooted or with sandals. There were no sidewalks or streets, only simple dirt paths. They were filled with the dust and effluvia of a first century community. Trash, mud, grime, animal droppings from herds of sheep. That in mind, look at that painting. Not only did Mary of Bethany wash the filth and the grime from Jesus' tired feet, she anointed him with expensive oil. Anointing someone uh, to us today sounds like a ceremonial act, a symbolic thing that may represent something larger. But in that day, it actually had a, a purpose, a practical purpose. The region around Jerusalem was really only one step above a desert. It was dry and arid with a scorching hot sun. Living in that area, mostly outdoors, walking from place to place, Jesus' feet and hands were probably cracked and calloused. His face sunburnt, his hair dry and tangled. Some scholars believe that the reason the Bible mentions that Mary poured out a pound of nard was that she didn't just stop at his feet. She would have taken that ointment and rubbed it on his hands, on his sunburned face, put it in his hair. Look at that painting. Not only did she cleanse and wash and anoint the being of Jesus, the person of Jesus, she cleansed and dried his feet with her hair. She did this not because there was a shortage of towels there in the house of Bethany. She did this so that she might be close to him. She did not want this to be just an act of hospitality she wanted it to be an act of love, and she poured out everything she possibly could on the person of Jesus. She did so because she loved him. Look at that painting. What's it saying to you? Mary was worshiping Jesus with all her heart, soul, and strength. All she had. 
And I believe she was worshiping him with her mind and intellect as well. Listen to the words of that verse 3 once more. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Therefore. Therefore. The verse goes on. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was there about to betray Jesus, said, Why was this ointment not sold for a year's wage and given to the poor? He said this not because he loved or cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, used to help himself from what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. So picture it again. Jesus seated, preparing for the meal. Lazarus reclining next to him, the Bible says. I love the fact that they said reclining next to Jesus. He was just raised from the dead. He probably had an excuse to be reclining. Judas sitting at the table, I don't know, counting the money one more time. Mary, once again, in the kitchen, but not complaining this time. The disciples, not even worth mentioning in this particular story. And we read the word, therefore. Therefore, when used in Scripture, and the word used in this particular passage, usually is a cause and effect. It's an action-reaction sort of word. The people did this, therefore God did this. I believe it's there because Mary, coming in, having sat at the foot of Jesus under his teaching so many times, as we read in Scripture, looked at the room, looked at the posture of everyone there, and said, no. She went and got the the most expensive thing that she had. She poured it out at his feet. Could it be that Mary, having sat at the feet of Jesus, knew who he was and what he was headed to in just six days? Even the disciples hadn't figured that out yet. I believe she had. Why else would she have used nard, something used to anoint and prepare a body for burial. Look at that painting. Mary did not hold back heart, soul, mind, or strength. So how does that inform us today as we close? We, following the example of Mary, bringing all that we are, before all that God is. One might be tempted to say, well, it was easy for Mary to be motivated to do all those things. He was right there with her. Mary, Jesus was right there. She could look him in the eye. She could reach out and touch his person. Of course she was motivated. He was right there. And yet, brothers and sisters of covenant, we have that same opportunity every single time we gather. 
Matthew 18 tells us that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. God is here. He's not over there. He's not up there. He's right before you, right beside you. Not only that, but the work is done. Jesus is not headed to the cross. He has endured the cross. He died giving his life already a sacrifice for ours. It's not conjecture. It's not discernment like it was for Mary. We know that it happened. And that's not the end, but as Jesus, our Messiah and Redeemer, rose from the tomb, conquering sin and death, we too now have the promise of eternal life with our Creator. Our lives are redeemed by His selfless and glorious act. How much more reason do we have to be on our faces before a holy God, pouring out the oil of all that we are on Jesus' feet? One last time, look at that painting. When was the last time you brought that posture of the heart to your worship? That you came before Jesus, face to the ground, hands outstretched simply to touch or feel the presence of our Redeemer, our Savior, our Healer, our coming and eternal King. What hinders you? What would keep you from joining Mary at the feet of Jesus every time you gather to worship? I think I was 16 when it finally sunk in what God had done for me and how and when and why we are to worship him. I was singing in our student choir at church we were presenting an anthem on Sunday morning that we'd worked on for weeks and weeks, and yet the lyrics and the words had not sunk in to my own intellect. The words are really a rather dour series of questions, and the music sort of matches it, somber, until the very end, in which in an explosion of reason and understanding, Questions are answered, and the music reflects it. And it was during that moment in worship it became clear for me. I can't, I wish I could demonstrate that song for you. I can't do that. But I can at least share the words to it, and maybe just a little bit of the end of the song. That glorious explosion of understanding. The song is entitled, My Eternal King. These are the words. My God, I love thee. Not because I hope for heaven thereby, nor yet because who love thee not must die eternally. Thou, O oh my Jesus, thou didst me upon the cross embrace. For me didst bear the nails, the nails, the spear, and manifold disgrace. 
Why, then why, O blessed Jesus Christ, should I not love thee well? Not for the hope of winning heaven or of escaping hell, not with the hope of gaining aught nor seeking a reward, but as thyself has loved me, O ever-loving Lord. E'en so I shall love thee, and will ever love, and in thy praises will sing, solely because thou art my God and my eternal King. Father, receive the praise of your people. Father, I pray that this family here at Covenant is a family that will always be willing to pour out all that we are at your feet. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Amen. Amen.